Times of rest and holiday often give you the opportunity to get into some box sets, either from the BBC, Prime, or maybe Netflix. Over the summer, me and my wife started to watch the BBC drama World on Fire. I don't know if any of you have got into it. It seeks to look at different personal stories during the Second World War. And one of the characters is a young French nurse who worked for the resistance against the Nazis. She's immensely brave, as repeatedly she puts her life on the line as she seeks to save her own people and some British soldiers. Now, when she's leading people to safety, when she's risking her life to save theirs, as you watch it, there's never anyone, anyone questioning her. When she says, follow me, they follow. They know who she is. So they follow her. They know that she's risking all. So they follow her. They know that by following her, there's every chance that they will be safe. And today's story is, has, has the same kind of feel as that, don't you think? Just look down again at verse 8, and we'll read it again. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in the boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. No questions No debate, just instant obedience, just like the people who followed the young nurse in the program. Then why? What is it about Jesus that causes these rough-around-the-edged fishermen to instantly obey him, instantly to leave literally everything and follow him? Well, to answer that question, to answer that question properly, you really need to watch the whole box set, which means you need to read the whole of Matthew's gospel. So if you haven't done that, we've got free copies as you leave. Please take one and read and look at the whole box set. But the three episodes that we've had already in chapters one to three will probably be enough for us today. And the present episode that we're looking in chapter four, I think will help us. You see, it all begins with the question, who is Jesus? He says, come follow me. I think the unnatural question is, why? Who are you? So let's start back in chapter one. You see, Matthew's big aim has been to show us that Jesus is God's king. He's God's king who has entered God's world. He's God's king who has all power and all authority. He's God's king who has entered a world where selfishness brings darkness to our lives. He's God's king who has entered a world where decay brings the tragedy of death. Just last week, one of my best friends lost their mum. The funeral was on Thursday. The tragedy of death. God's king, he arrives. He arrives and he's on the front foot. He's on the front foot because he's come to sort out all those things. 
He's God's king, so he's never, ever, ever takes a backward step. He's always, always on the front foot. And you see that in chapter 1. Just turn back to chapter 1. And as you look at it, just a quick brief look at chapter 1, you might think, man, all these names, what are these all about? And they're so hard to read. I'm glad I don't have to read this passage. I hope I never will be asked to read this passage at a service at All Souls. Massive long names. But what's Matthew doing? Matthew's aim is to show you and me that pumping around his veins, Jesus has royal blood. He's a king. Look at verse 6. And Jesse, the father of King David. See, that's David's family. That's Jesus' family line. And his great, 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 great granddad is King David. He has royal blood pumping through his veins. And then in chapter 2, we see that when God's king enters his world, instantly people see him as a major threat. A threat to their selfishness, for they want to run the show. They don't want anybody else in control of their decisions, the decisions that they make. He's a major threat to self-rule. Well, of course he is. Of course he's a major threat to self-rule. Who is he? He's God's king. He's on the front foot. He's not going to muck about with the thing that is suffocating and destroying us, our sin and selfishness. He's come... He's come to deal with it. But when he does, when he does come to deal with our sin and selfishness, there's always two responses. There's a response of Herod. Remember the Christmas story where Herod, the king, feels so threatened by Jesus, the king, that he enters, that he orders for all the baby boys to be murdered. Well, that's Matthew 2. And and then there's the wise men. And how do they respond? Well, they, if you like, They follow Jesus. Just look, chapter 2, verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod because we know what he's doing, they returned to their country by another route. When people realise that God's king is here, It seems there's always two responses. Worship, people follow. Or hatred, people refuse. Refuse point blank to have him rule over them. And you know what? In my experience, it's exactly the same today. Exactly the same. When people come face to face with the real Jesus, King Jesus, Jesus on the front foot, Not the Jesus who's apologizing for his existence. No, the real Jesus. The Jesus who commands people to follow him. Commands people to obey him. Yet when people understand the real Jesus, they either worship or hate. They either follow or refuse. That was the response then, and in my experience, it's the same thing happens today. And then in chapter, episode three, chapter three, we have two mighty voices, two mighty voices commanding us to recognize who it is who's come to earth. Look at chapter three, verse one. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. What's he doing? What's he saying? Look, everyone. 
Look, everyone, you've got to realize who it is who's turned up on the scene. It's God's king. He's on the front foot. No more messing around. No more messing around and thinking that you're in charge. And then there's God the Father. Look at verse 17. And the voice from heaven said, This is my son, whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. Same thing. Look, everyone. Recognize who's turned up on the scene. It's God's king. He's on the front foot. No more messing around, thinking you're in charge. And then we get to the episode, chapter 4, that we're in today. As Campbell showed us a couple of weeks ago, it's an episode that starts with a fierce fight, a fight between God's king and his arch rival, his enemy, Satan. And what, is God, what happens? Well, God's king is triumphant, of course. Look at verse 10. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him. And the angels attended him. God's king. God's king is on the scene. Satan tries to tempt him, but he fails and goes away with his tail between his legs. Of course he does. Of course he does. I mean, who's he taking on? He's taking on God's king, who's always on the front foot, who's come to deal with our selfishness, our death and darkness, the death and darkness that Satan loves to create. Secondly, the disciples who follow. Now, with that kind of CV that Jesus has, the little bit of surprise that we might have thought in the story that we had read is kind of answered, isn't it? When God's king, the answer to our deepest problem, when he arrives on the scene and says, come follow me, what would you expect people to do? He's God's king. You see, we don't really know how much of the episodes, chapters 1 and 3, the disciples knew about. But the reason Matthew includes the last story at the end of chapter 4 is to show us what the disciples who Jesus is calling had definitely seen at first hand. They'd seen these things with their own eyes. Just look again at chapter 4, verse 23. What, what, what Matthew is doing is saying, look, this is what the disciples who he's calling, this is what they're living through. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all, all over Syria, and people brought to him all who, all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering with severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Matthew put this at the end as a kind of reminder These events, the disciples would have seen firsthand. They would have heard with their own ears the preaching of Jesus. They would have seen with their own eyes Jesus heal every disease and every sickness. They would have seen with their own eyes Jesus cast out the demons. And with this evidence right before them, Jesus says, come follow me. I wonder what you'd have done if Jesus said to you, come, follow me. Well, in fact, he does say today to you, come, follow me.
I wonder if Jesus called you to follow what you would say. Maybe you think, well, you know, Trev, if I was genuinely there, if, if I genuinely saw the things that Jesus did, if I genuinely heard the voice, then, yeah, I would, I really would, I really would. If I really saw it and I really heard it, then I would genuinely follow him. Because after all, Trev, uh, seeing is believing, isn't it? But think about it. Do we really have to see to believe? Really? Most of history that we believe is taken from eyewitness accounts. We haven't seen it. They have. We haven't. Yet we believe it. Everything I've outlined from episodes one to four was written down from eye and ear witnesses. And from chapter four onwards, it's the author Matthew's eye and ear witness, as we just read in verses 23 to 25. You see, any talk of God on the front foot, maybe even the way I've used that phrase today, it kind of makes you, kind of jars with you a little bit. I think, mm, God on the front foot? And one of the reasons for that is that our secular culture, the culture that you are growing up in, the great culture that our young people are growing up in, has drugged us. It's drugged us to, 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 to think and feel that God is an utter and total irrelevance. It's often when you speak to people from an Asian or African and other cultures, when you talk about God, my father-in-law, who's a Muslim, you speak to him, you speak about God and spiritual things, there's no embarrassment, it's so natural. Speak about people in the secular West, and it's so unnatural because we've been drugged. You see, our secular culture has skillfully brainwashed us into thinking that true wisdom and knowledge resides in whom? It resides in little you and little me. Any problems we have, well, we're the answer. We can sort them out, thank you very much. Jesus, Jesus, God's King is an irrelevance, a fairy tale sideshow to real life. But Matthew, the eyewitness, well, he's not going to let us get away with that. Matthew, the eyewitness, he wants to call out our secular culture and all that nonsense about God not being relevant. Jesus, Jesus, God's king and irrelevance. I'm not sure those who were healed by him would have thought that. Jesus, a fairy tale sideshow. I'm not sure those who were demon possessed and had their demons cast out thought he was a sideshow. Fairy story. Jesus, a king who asks nothing of us. I think Matthew would say, actually, ask nothing of you. He's just called me to follow him and give up all. Just look at chapter 4, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come. I'm God's king. I'm on the front foot. No more messing around. No more messing around thinking you're in charge. I made the sun. I made the moon. I made the stars. You're in charge? Really? In fact, thinking you're in charge actually is your greatest problem. Jesus would say, thinking you're in charge is actually your greatest sin. So you've got to repent of that. What does repentance mean? It means change the whole way that you think. The whole way that you think about yourself. The whole way you think about God. I've come to show you that your thinking, that you're in charge of your life, is the greatest sin. I've come to die. 
for that very thinking so it can be forgiven. You see, Matthew would say that Jesus, God's king, rightfully asks everything of you. He created you. He's going to die for you. And just think what following Christ costs these disciples. And of course, if we follow Christ, it costs us the same. It costs them their security. Look at verse 20. At once they left their nets and followed him. Up to now, their security was invested in their job as fishermen. But now, now Jesus says, leave it all. Just think about the things you find security in related to your job and your career. The things that you find security in that are related to your job and your career. Obviously, it's financial security. It brings you huge security. Or maybe it's the prestige and the status your job brings you. Oh, I am a... Or maybe it's your child, what they're up to. Oh, they are. They go to this or they go to that university. They have this or they have that career. And it gives you security. It gives you prestige. But for many Christians around the world, following Jesus puts all those things on the line. For many Christians around the world, those things will never have. They will never have those things because they have chosen to follow Jesus. And you know, the feel and the flow of our culture today, these things may be on the line for you and me in the not-too-distant future, our children in the not-too-distant future. Oh, 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 you go to all souls, do you? Oh, that church that believes the Bible says that? Really? A bit bigoted, isn't it? A bit unkind? A bit unloving, if you don't mind me saying? You really? You really believe the Bible says that? I mean, previously it might have helped you to have, to put on your personal statement for uni or your application form for a new job that you were a keen Christian and a member of All Souls Langham Place. But now, or maybe in the very near future, following Jesus will make it a lot more tricky in what you put down on your personal statement or how you fill out your application form. Or maybe it's a case of influence. And secondly, it's influence. Just look down again at verse 22. And immediately they left the boat and their father and they followed him. Up to now, the biggest influence upon the fishermen's lives has been their family, but now the king has called them. The king has come into his world and he said, come follow me. Now Jesus is their biggest influence, which is what it means to follow him as your king. So following him will mean walking to a different drumbeat. Your children, your grandchildren, they're called to walk to a different drumbeat to their peer group. Maybe you're a student here. You've just arrived in London. And following Jesus will mean you live radically different 
to the other students in your halls. Radically different in the amount of alcohol you consume. Radically different in how you approach sex. Radically different in how you approach your studies and the way you honour the financial support your parents have generously and probably sacrificially given you. Different in the way that Christian, they clearly work hard. Maybe they work harder than anybody else, and that's good. But they always seem to have time for people. Their, their, their exams and their, they're important to them, but they clearly, that Christian thing makes them always put other people before their studies. Wow, how different they are. There's a winsomeness about them. Your biggest influence as a student is the king who's called you. And those the king calls joyfully follow. Which leads to my last point. The joy of fishing. During lockdown, I got, I got friendly with, with uh, one of the... My, I was taking my granddaughter to school and uh, got really friendly with an, another parent. Well, I was a grandparent. He's a parent. And um, we started cycling together. And I'll never forget, we were cycling. He, he always did the, 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 the route because I'd always get lost. And we were, we were going along the canal once, and there was this guy there, and he caught a pike. And I'm not kidding you. It was from the floor to about there. I texted it to another mate who's a fisherman, and he texted straight back a pike that he had caught that was like that. <laughs> now, both those pictures, the people who, with, with the, who caught the fish, they weren't like this. I mean, when you've caught a fish, what look on your face do you have? You have a massive smile because you've caught this fish. It's a joyful experience catching fish. Now, about three or four years ago, I was, I was on holiday and I was walking along the seashore with my granddaughter, who then was about four. And in the distance, near distance, I could see a guy painting. So my little granddaughter says, Granddad, you speak to everybody. And she's right, I try and engage and chat with everyone. So I thought I'll go and have a chat with him. So when I started speaking to him, I said, Oh, you know, see so you painting, blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, you know, when you ask a question and there's a silence, you think, oh, that was a really stupid question. Maybe you've never had that experience. It's, it's, it's common for me. And uh, I said to him, oh, well, how long does it take to paint one of these pictures? And then there was a silence. And he was painting away. And he didn't, you know, he didn't even look at me. He was painting away. How long does it take to paint one of these pictures? And he just said this. Love doesn't count. Love doesn't count. You see, he was so intoxicated with what he was trying to convey. He was so taken up with the brilliance and the beauty of what he was looking at. You don't worry about time. Because you're so in love with what you're doing. What you're trying, you're looking at what you're trying to convey. Jesus says, Come and believe a whole teach a load of teaching. Jesus says, "Come and what did he say? Come and follow me." It's an invitation. It's an invitation into a relationship. 
It's an invitation to say, come and follow me. Come and enjoy me. So as the disciples follow him for the next three years, they're going to see him do so many amazing, powerful things. But far more importantly than that, as, he, as, as we're going to see next week in, in the sermon that he preaches, he's saying the way you catch people is in your character being just like me. That's the way you catch people. He's inviting people, come and know me. Come and enjoy me. Come into a relationship where I am the pearl of greatest price. Go and sell everything so that you have me, so that I am the most important thing in your life. You know, if I said to you, Trevor Pierce needs to be the most important thing in your life, what would you do? You'd have every right to laugh your head off because I'm, I'm equal to you. Maybe a lot less than you. But when the king, when he says, come follow me, he's inviting you into a relationship. He's inviting you into know him, to love him, to enjoy him. And then you know, the more you love him, the more you enjoy him, then what are you want again going to want to do? If they didn't, but if West Ham yesterday had beaten Manchester City, the European champions, I'd have watched it on Match of the Day about four times. And then when I came to church, I'd be looking for certain people of other teams, giving them a little wink, and then I'd be praising them. You praise what you enjoy, don't you? Whatever it is, what you most enjoy, you have a great meal. You then say, oh, a great meal. You go to that restaurant, you praise it. You praise what you enjoy. You praise what you love. And Jesus is saying, come, follow me. Come and enjoy me. I'm your saviour. And then when you enjoy him, how long did it take? Love doesn't count. When you enjoy Christ, cost? Oh, there is a cost. Big cost for many around the world today. There's a cost. When you're taken up with the king and his brilliance and his beauty, you'll do anything for him, won't you? Because of his beauty and his brilliance. He's the king. And he says, he says to you today, you come follow me. Have you obeyed the command? Have you followed him? Do you want to follow him today? I want to take Matthew's gospel. Take it. Talk to somebody who maybe brought you. Talk to somebody on the door. Come to the one today, the king, who says, come follow me.